This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. I'm Troy Kitch. 100 years ago this month, the RMS Titanic sank after striking an iceberg on her maiden voyage from the United Kingdom to New York City. Nearly three quarters of the 2,200 people on board the ship perished. Titanic tugged at the heart from the beginning because of the circumstances of its loss. It's a maiden voyage. You have all these people on board. There's so much promise. It was, as they say in the movie, a ship of dreams, particularly for those who were on it to start a new life. The fact that that ended suddenly and dramatically, that... You're listening to Jim Delgado, ocean explorer and marine archaeologist. The fact that death cut across all classes, that the richest man on board died, that that had uh, an impact as well as the poignancy of the loss of the families. That played out dramatically because in many ways Titanic was the world's first modern media disaster that played out in real time. And what I mean by that is this was in an age before regular online fast breaking news broadcasts. But there was the wireless transmission, the dot, 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 dash, 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 that told the story dramatically that she was sinking, that other ships were on their way, and then ultimately that the Carpathia had arrived to find Titanic sunk and that they'd picked up survivors. And then the wait of a few days until Carpathia docked, and then the story went across the wires throughout the world. It dominated headlines. It inspired more than a thousand pieces of music. It inspired memorials, sermons, physical monuments, and a lot of quiet, private, heartbroken remembrance. In recognition of the 100th year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, this podcast is the first of two episodes we're producing this month, featuring an extended interview with Jim Delgado, Director of Maritime Heritage with the National Ocean Service's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. When you consider a man who had come from his native Finland, who had arrived with his brother-in-law to raise money to bring his wife and four children home, to have sent the money for her to be on Titanic and to find that that night all of them had died. When he showed up at the White Star Line's office in New York and stood in line and was told that his wife and children were gone, he collapsed. His friend ushered him to a bench and white-faced. He somewhat came to and stumbled off and never again married, really didn't speak much of it until he died in 1965. That played out powerfully in a lot of households. Those types of stories speak to us still after 100 years. It's literally just around the corner in terms of human history. If you think of it, it's just a few generations. I myself have met and talked to Titanic survivors, all now gone, of course. And in that, in that connection to humanity and in that connection that not only meeting these people and hearing their stories, but the connection that you have when you're actually there, when you see that ship, I think that's why it sticks with us. And Robert Ballard and Jean-Louis Michel's rediscovery of Titanic in 1985 really brought that home. With every visit since, we are compelled in many ways. Titanic is a ship that really never left us, or shall I say, Titanic is a ship that we really never left alone. Jim has been deeply involved with an international effort to protect and preserve the Titanic wreck site and all of its artifacts for many decades. And he's had two dives down to the Titanic. I think the most memorable experience for me was being down there, of course, and going from spot to spot and making that sudden leap, if you will, in your mind. You you, you sort of get it. 
You know, this is a ship that had a lot happen on it. There are powerful stories that played out, but in many ways, it's something you read about. It's in a book. It's in a film. And then you're there. For me, I recall moving across the deck, as others have, and you come to a different spot and you're making your notes about where you are and what you're looking at. And in this case, I'm, I'm looking at corrosion. I'm looking at different aspects, what's preserved, what's not. And we come to the davit that's dangling there from lifeboat number eight. Eight's a pretty important lifeboat because this is a boat that had somebody important not survive. Isidore and Ida Strauss were rich, important people. He was the owner of Macy's department store in New York. They were older. They were coming back from Europe. And in that night, as the ship is sinking, with women and children first, Mrs. Strauss and the maid get in the boat. But Mr. Strauss cannot. It is women and children first. And in some cases, that rule is interpreted as women and children only. For a man to get into the boats was to risk censure, if not embarrassment, then outright ostracization. Um, To be ostracized meant complete shunning, you know. So he's not going to get in. J. Bruce Ismay, the owner of the company, of course, did and had to hide out for the rest of his life in shame. Other men survived and were divorced by their wives who didn't want to be married to a coward who didn't have the bravery to die like a man. So Mr. Strauss is not about to get in this boat. He can't. Mrs. Strauss is not going to let him stay there. Now, bear in mind, they know darn well what's going to happen. This ship is going down into icy cold water. He is not going to go easy. He is going to struggle and choke in that freezing water, and he's going to be pulled down, and he's going to die in pain. And if not that, then he's going to freeze and float there with so many others. So she gets out of the boat. And the officer loading the boat tries to get her back in, as do others, and she won't. Because as she explains, they've been married for a very long time, and she loves him. And where she goes, he goes. Now that might sound like sort of an arcane concept, particularly in the 21st century, as much as, say, women and children first. But I can guarantee you, as somebody who's loved and who's lost, that I get it. And she got it. And so she locked arms with her husband, and they walked off, and they sat down, and they died together. That's love. That's love unrefined at its most basic. And I'll tell you that that spot on that deck, seeing where that happened, it came across powerfully. I was there. It ceased to be a story. And I cried. Of course I cried. I think any of us that do that, and I've talked to many other people, including rough, tough, bold explorers, and you do. It's a place that that confronts you with this. It is a museum. It's a ghost town. It's a powerful place. And it's a reminder why Titanic is special. But I can tell you there's other shipwrecks as well where if you know the stories, you get it. And a visit is a powerful one. It's the history, the stories behind the artifacts that make places like Titanic so special. Jim said that this anniversary year is a time to reflect on these stories and to reaffirm our commitment to protecting all of our special places in the sea for future generations. For me personally, this anniversary is a reminder that history is about people, that it's not necessarily about the big events or the big names, but it's about people, ordinary people, who oftentimes are caught up in things beyond their control, and that's life. 
Uh, it's a reminder that in an event like this, as we mark its 100th anniversary, it's, a, it's an opportunity to learn. I don't think we fully learned every lesson that the Titanic had to offer us, and indeed had we, then the 20th century would have played out a lot differently. That's also life. Finally, I think the anniversary for me is a reminder that events like this, as we commemorate them, are an opportunity for us to connect back to these places, these special places in the sea, and renew our commitment to protect them for what they're worth, their value and their importance to us as human beings, as Americans, as citizens in our own communities, and as family members. Whether it's an important natural resource, our fisheries, whether it's an important coral reef, or whether it's a shipwreck that speaks powerfully to our experiences, there's reasons why we set aside places in the ocean for conservation, protection, and to share with the public in a way that's either renewable or non-exploitive. And for that, I look at this 100th anniversary as an opportunity to renew my commitment not only to see Titanic protected and available for future generations to experience, but also other shipwrecks like her that are museums in the sea. I hope you join us for our next episode coming up in two weeks when you'll hear many more details about Jim's dives to the Titanic and the complicated story behind the quest to preserve and protect this famous shipwreck over the years. It's a story that's still being written. And you'll also learn about new projects now underway that are bringing the Titanic experience directly to you. And that's all for this week. If you'd like to learn more, check our show notes for the links. You'll find these on our website at oceanservice.noaa.gov. If you have any questions about the episode, about our oceans, or about the National Ocean Service, you can reach us always at nos.info at noaa.gov. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service.